Okay. So I thought of getting into a series of shirim that um, I'd read uh, many years ago. Uh, there's a, a Rav, actually, who used to who used to be in Melbourne um, and uh, and now lives in Ramat Beit Shemesh. Uh, Rabbi Yaakov Heber is his name. And um, I'd met him br uh, briefly at a, at a conference and found out that uh, by extension through marriage, there's like a, some relation that we have there. We like very, very distant cousins. But either way, uh, I met him at a conference in America and uh, he shared with me some of the stuff that he was doing. This is, and this goes, this goes back like 20 years ago. And uh, anyway, at the time, I was, uh, I was really enthused by what he had done because it really spoke to um, one of the things that I really like doing, and that is delving into uh, Jewish history with a philosophical bend. And um, so he, he set up now, he's got a website, and uh, he's been very successful as, a, as an educator and a rov, you know, might be Shemesh. And um, I thought, you know, I'm, I haven't I haven't read this stuff in a long time, and I'd go back to read it and then and then share it with you. So um, this uh, this this particular discussion will uh, attempt to, to identify unique um, personalities in Jewish history and um, and the philosophy that that it represents, and we'll discuss the major the major topics of each philosopher. And how how applied and worked with in, uh, in in you know the various historical events that took place um, at the time. So yeah, let me uh, let's jump right into it, and um, I'll I'll sort of take you through the the process. So um, there's a there's a very interesting um, anecdote which uh, which I'd like to share with you. Uh, because it uh, it helps put this concept of looking at philosophical developments of thought and and Jewish history, you know, it sort of puts it in perspective. And uh, this is this is one the the idea that I'm going to share with you is a uh, it's actually a well known anecdote, um, but it, but it really it really um, it really talks to us about uh, history and philosophy developing hand in hand. Another way to, another way to put it is to say that, you know, uh, Hashem basically decides when um, when it's time for a certain idea to be born. And at that point in time, um, that, that idea, that philosophy uh, becomes relevant in history, not just Jewish history, but, but general history, uh, all at the same time. Now, uh, the, the anecdote um, is, is as follows. Um, the Gaon of Vilna had an outstanding uh, pupil whose name was Reb Chaim. We know him as Reb Chaim from Velozhin because he opened up the first um, modern-day yeshiva, if you will, um, and therefore he's known as Reb Chaim Velozhin. He was the, the prime pupil of the Gaon of Vilna. And um, the anecdote goes like this, that Reb Chaim had, uh, was studying and he came across a very uh, challenging piece of, of Gomorrah and um, he he got stuck. He got stuck because he just couldn't he couldn't solve the, he couldn't resolve the how the how the, the principle was being um, you know was being developed. Anyway, what he, he was he was he was dedicated to the to the nth degree to try and solve this uh, Talmudic problem. So he uh, he secluded himself in a room for a, for two to three days, 
where he would not move from there until he uh you know he would he would um be able to solve this problem anyway he he he, he davened for for Hashem's help to 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 sort the problem out he learned as many hours as he could to get it in the end of the day after a couple of days uh you know a light went off in his head and everything became clear um and uh, he was he was he was absolutely overjoyed that he put in all this effort and um after this intense period of concentration and dedication he'd be able he'd been able to resolve um the development the analysis of the gemara anyhow a couple of days later he walks into the shtibel to daven and he sees uh, a father and son studying the exact same piece of Gomorrah uh, that uh, he had battled his guts out to resolve um, the week prior. Anyway, he, he sort of became excited to see what, what, what was going to happen with this father and child uh, session, because how are they going to solve this Gomorrah? Would, he, you know, would they find the same difficulties that he found, etc.? Anyway, what, uh, what happened was as follows, that he, he, he couldn't believe what was going on because this young kid who was pre-Bar Mitzvah was being taught by his father. And his father asked the question that Rebbeim took so long to resolve. All of a sudden, uh, the child was able to explain the Gemara um, exactly as Rebbeim had, had explained it. Um, but Rebbeim almost like fell on the floor. Like he had spent three days of non-stop engagement in this sugya in the discussion of the Gemara and yeah this young kid was able to say it over uh, exactly the same way that he was able to say it over you know and the, the story goes that Reb Chaim basically fainted like he he could not he just couldn't deal with it anyway after they revived him he um he had to deal with this issue it was almost like really really got, really got to him how could a young Priva Mitzvah kid have resolved the problem that he was struggling with? And so on his next visit to, to Vilna, he, um, he came to discuss this issue with, with, with the Gaon to see what the Gaon of Vilna had to say. And uh, the Gaon heard him out and offered him a solution to the problem. And he told him as follows. He said that, um, that you know, we, we think that Akash Baruch God creates the world at, at one point in time and then allows it to evolve um, throughout history. But the truth be told is, is that the concept of uh, the concept of creation is an ongoing process. It's every single moment by moment, Hashem is uh, you know is 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 being mashgiach. Hashem is like looking at the world with divine providence and and guarding um, human beings, you know, to try and somehow create a better scenario in the world and deal with all the issues that exactly that exactly work over here. Anyhow, um, what the Ga what the Gaon then did to explain to Reb Chaim was how this process of a uh, of Hashem uh, recreating the world, if you will, almost uh, on a moment to moment basis, you know, how this how this whole thing works. And um, I think I might have shared this uh, this idea with you. I'm going to try to quickly um, sh give a, see if I can share my screen with you. Um, 
and you can see you can see this idea and let me see if i can if i can do it um sitting in this um sorry i'm just trying to work it out I'm not finding it um okay maybe another way is to um sorry i'm just trying to work out i don't know why i'm not being able to find how to share the screen with you no not happening for me all right i guess the better best way to do it is i'm going to um i'm going to share it with you by putting it on the on the chat and then that might that might work so let's see if i can do that um if i can take also not doing good for me all right give me a second i'll be with you now Okay. All right. So you can look at your your WhatsApp groups uh, group, our WhatsApp group, the Monday morning thing, um, and then you can see I've sent you a picture of what I'm what I'm looking to try and describe to you. Okay. So this is a this is a kind of a table that allows us uh, insight into into a really um, foundational concept over here. And uh, what we're looking at is uh, is a description of how creation actually takes place. So the Kabbalists identify four different spiritual worlds, if you will. Um, and the nickname for it is Abiyah. This is why the chart is called Abiyah. Uh, the word Abiyah is an acronym, and it's made up of uh, each word standing for a concept um, and if you have a look at the extreme left hand uh, left hand um, part of the picture so there you'll see that the first the first word on the right on the on the extreme left under four spiritual worlds is a world called the world of atzilut so in the world in the in the idea in the concept of kabbalah the word atzilut means eitzel is something like next to uh, it represents Hashem's essence is something we can't com uh, comprehend, but the stage that's the first level of somewhat ability to comprehend something is that is is the world closest to Hashem. So Hashem's essence is a totally spiritual being we can't as human beings comprehend, but the first touch that Hashem has with our physical universe uh, is called the world of Atzilut. Uh, now what happens is. What happens is as follows. Um, ev every concept um, is created or allowed to exist because it exists in Hashem's mind first. And so whenever an idea 
finds its place in our world, it's, it's because it exists in Hashem's mind um, from the very beginning. Like we say um, in the Lechadodi, we say, Sof Maaseh, the end of all deeds, um, starts with a process, an intellectual uh, drawing, if you will, in Akosh Baruch's mind. So the concept, the concept starts, any concept that exists in the world only exists because uh, it exists in, a, in, a, in Hashem's world as well. So where everything starts off is in this, in, in, in the so-called corner of Hashem's mind called, called Atzilut. And there, the concept, you know, comes into, into being. So if you have a look um, at, at this world called Atzilut, a nice way of capturing the idea is to compare the, con the concept of creation, which is the extreme left-hand column, the worlds of Hashem, to a process of invention, which is the, the second column, you know, on this, uh, on this page. And um, this, again, is uh, Rabbi Haber's page that he has on his website there. Um, and uh, it's a fantastic kind of uh, chart. So if you're comparing how ideas manifest and our world absorbs these ideas, uh, the nicest way to do it or a, a very effective way of doing it is to compare it to a, a process of, of, of inventing something. So you, you're an inventor, you're thinking about a concept. That original thought or inspiration that you have is what we would call the equivalent, the parallel to the first spiritual world that closest to Hashem called Atzilut. So the, now the, 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 the second uh, rung on the ladder, so to speak, is uh, the second world in where spirituality and physicality are starting to, to somehow correlate to each other. Uh, th that world is called Briya, the word Borei, Bereshit Bara. That's a conjugation of that word, of that verb to create. Briya means to create something. Hashem created the universe. Uh, it's specifically defined as a type of creation, which is Yesh Me'ayin, which means there was nothing there before. And Akosh Baruch Hu then created something from nothing. Um, and this level of creation, yesh in something from nothing, like Hashem, it's the very first start in the in the process of creation. And um, in in uh, in philosophy, they talk about ex nihilo. It means literally something out of out of nothing. So at this point in time, what we have is the idea is born, the concept is created as an idea, and that's. In the world of in, in the world of Atzilut, it's like it's like the person who's inventing and just comes up with the idea. Then you've got to bring that idea closer to uh, becoming real in our world. And the way you do that is in the case of somebody who's invented something, you then you create a sketch, you you draw the idea that you want um, produced, and that would be the equivalent of moving that idea down from the highest level of spirituality, Atzilut, to the next level called Buriya. And from that particular level of Buriya, the, the next process, once you've drawn the actual concept, then you go down to Yitzira. Now the word Yitzira, Yotzer or Vorei Choshech, 
is, is another way of saying Hashem creates. Yotzer and Borei. Yotzer, so what's the difference between the two of them? So as we said, Bria is something from nothing. Yotzer is to fashion or to form something from something that already exists. Uh, and, and therefore, what's happening over here is the, the concept starts in idea form. It then's transferred to a drawing. And the drawing in the, is then converted into a, a prototype. Yetzira parallels uh, an actual physical form now. You've got a three-dimensional image. And uh, this has taken the concept and given it um, some physicality. And the net, the, once it reaches this second to last stage, from Atzilut to Bria to Yetzira, and it comes to the last stage called Asiya, Asiya relates to our world, our world in which this physical entity or the concept has taken form, and it's, it's now practical, uh, it can be practically used by, by and, and, and mass-produced, so to speak, in our world. So you've thought of a concept, you drew it as an architect would um, to, 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 to give an impression of what the design needs to work off, then you build a prototype, and then you eventually come up with a final product, which can which can be mass produced. Now that is called that is called the principle of abia. So the Gaon of Vilna taught Reb Chaim this principle. So he told him, "This is how the world works. Everything really fits into this category, and it can be expanded in so many areas." As you see, the rest of the the, the the chart does for us and when we when we start getting to talk about uh the Beit Amikdash, the mishkan in the desert you start to see there's what to talk about them the mishkan is designed the Beit Amikdash is designed to teach this concept um a process of creation a process of building yourself a process of achieving something all of that needs a, a stage by stage process of development and of course, Baruch Hu creates the world like that. And if we understand it deeply enough, we can then start to, uh, you know, apply it to our uh, to our world as well. How we think about ideas, how how we try and teach ideas. Uh, it's very difficult to just dump the product in front of somebody and say, "Okay, copy this." You've got to break it down so the person can understand what you've tried to, you know, what what is everything made up of. And just as it's true with physical entities it's it's true with concepts as well so this is the going back to the to the story over here you know what happened what happened Reb Chaim got stuck on a concept the Gemara was really really difficult and despite being one of the preeminent scholars of the generation he got stuck he got stuck on this particular idea so he works and he works and he works and he works and um you know, he spills his energy as much as he can on this problem. Eventually, he resolves it. Uh, and then he, 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 uh, he's surprised by the fact that he walks into the base of Madrash and he sees that uh, other people have chapped it, even people who don't, so to speak, deserve. How does an 11-year-old kid and, and, uh, and with, with his father, who are nowhere near the level of Rabhaim, how, how do they... Uh, even have access to this uh, to this idea that he broke his head over, and so the Gaon tried to explain this this what happened to him based on this concept. So what he told Reb Chaim was as follows: He said, "Look, 
this chidush, this novel idea, this ability to explain the Gemara that you that you came up with, that thought uh, had to be created. That thought had to go through a process of abia. So the idea exists in Hashem's, so to speak, world of atzilut. And, and now that concept that existed there, Hashem felt it was time to be born. The idea, uh, it's, it's time had come. But it needed somebody to work like anything, you know, to bring it down to our world. And so what happened was, is when you started to work on it, uh, you basically took that concept and you brought it down from the world of Atzilut to the world of Berea. You know, you sort of had a, a, a sketch of this concept in your mind after working to to give it some sort of shape until eventually it came down now to a little bit more uh, a concrete level where you were able to take that concept and give it a more than a sketch, give it a third dimension, if you will. Um, and once you did that, once you brought the idea from Atsilut to Bria and Bria to Yitzira, you've done three quarters of the work. In other words, you needed somebody to work like anything to bring it. The hardest part is to bring these concepts all the way down from its place in the spiritual world um, to the to the world in which we all live. And the minute you brought it down um, to the world of Asiya, the minute the minute it came down, it became available to everybody. And all of a sudden now, that that same that final product that you produced before you know it, you know, the Japanese and Chinese have copied it and they've sold it onto the world. You know, that's really what, what's happened. You basically, you, the, the, the idea has been copied because somebody somebody broke their head on trying to do all the work to bring it down to a level that everybody could have. And then once it, once it gets to uh, the, the bottom of the ladder and it's standing on, on two feet on terra firma, then um, everybody has access, you know, to, uh, to this idea. And this is the secret of... Abia that the Gaon explained to Reb Chaim that it happened to him. That's why it took him so long and it was such a hard job to get it down to that point because you were the one who was blessed by Hashem together with your effort to bring down the to bring down this, this concept. So that's the idea that that um, we have to you know to, to digest as to how things work on a day-to-day -day basis. And every now and then we, we get a glimpse when there's something unique that happens in the world, somebody comes up with a concept and before you know it, uh, you know, it becomes something that we all used to, you know, we take, we take the concept of a mobile phone or, or should I say the young generation, you know, our kids look at a mobile phone and it's like, you know, it's second nature to them. There's no, they don't see a chidush. They don't see a novel idea in the mobile phone to them. It's like normal. Um, you know, our kids have gone on a gap year. They 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 studying in Israel, and and there's there's not even a a question of how you're going to communicate. You know, and every day we see each other. Every day, every minute, you can communicate if you want to. You know, but when our generation, and and I don't even have to say your generation went to Israel for a if you even went, uh, if we're able to go when you were teenagers, what you you know. You, you, the only thing we were told was, you know, 
your parents hand you a pile of aerograms and they say, well, we expect to hear from you at least every two weeks, you know, so someone or every week, someone's going to write a letter. So to us, you know, who went, who went overseas, that's the only way we could communicate. Somebody had to bring this idea down, you know, uh, you want to call it Steve's jobs. Okay, fine. You know, um, let it, let, but somebody has got to bring it down. And when Akash Baruch decides that it's time for an idea, you know, for good or for bad, so to speak, for the human, for the human, the world that we live in, the idea is born. But it takes somebody hours, you know, how many tens, hundreds, thousands of hours invested to achieve the breakthrough that eventually mass produce a, a mobile phone. And this is true with every single concept, you know, in, in the world. Now, the, the, the interesting methodological approach over here, which I really enjoyed, um, you know, learning it from uh, Rabbi Haber's presentation over here, was this idea to try and find concepts like a mobile phone, for example, and plot it on a chart, on a historical timeline, and see what year it was produced, and then work out, like draw a circle around that year and try and see the circle sort of is broader to sort of cover i don't know 50 years before and 50 years after you can do it on just just try and see if you can work out what was happening at that point in time that necessitated this invention to uh to come down all these rungs on the ladder from atzilut now rabbi doesn't talk about it in terms of a ladder but um, I used this concept to explain, you know, Yaakov Avinu's vision of the angels going up and down the ladder and what he was seeing. And I used the rungs of the ladder as an attempt to, um, you know, to explain how creation was working and, and, and this concept. So the idea was to try and find, um, you know, inventions that took place in history to try and see you know, what was happening at the same time. And what, you'll, what you should be able to see when you do that is you can start to see that there are concepts, ideas, philosophies, there are, there are the science is all work, are all working together. And at the same time, people are developing ideas, responding to where the human being's development is, and the inventions start to start to come. And, uh, he gave this Rabbi Haber gave the you know the best or a great example of it that he had researched, and uh, he he claimed like this. He said that the story of the telephone um, is such a story that demonstrates this principle. So this is his uh, you know I looked it up online just to see the different people involved over here, and uh, the story goes like this. They tell you history tells us that in 1876, um, the inventor, the invention of the telephone, you know, came to us. Now, if you ask uh, anybody with a bit of general knowledge who invented the telephone, uh, we all were taught that, okay, Alexander Graham Bell invented the telephone in America. Now, when you do a bit of historical research on it, you start to see that there were other physicists, there were other scientists as great as Alexander Graham Bell, um, elsewhere in the world, that were working on the same concept. It wasn't just that 
he was, you know, the only one who what 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 needs to be uh, um, understood within the world of science to create a telephone. Now there was a a German physicist whose name is Hermann van Helholtz, who published uh, a similar thesis. And you look it up online. This Hermann van Helholtz, and he's a he, he's a physicist, and he um. He published an essay, a thesis called, you know, on the sensation of tone. And in that particular thesis, he describes almost word for word, you know, in 1876, on his own, the concept of the telephone. So they got you got two, you got two scientists working on this on this issue. Uh, there's Bell and there's the Van Helholtz. And they they separated by continents. And they've never spoken to each other, and they're both coming up with the same concept. And when we look, when we look back, we st we start to see that, you know. So so what happened over here? How did you know who was the one who was going to bring this concept, you know, down to earth? And to make matters more interesting, is um, is the fact that there was another uh, a, a electrical genius who was in the opposite side of America. And he's, he's a Yiddish guy, actually. His name is Elisha Gray. And he also developed on his own a prototype of a telephone-type device at the very same time. And, and, and we're talking about the, the very same time, so much so that, 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 that Gray, I think he was, on the, you know, he was on the east coast of America, and Alexander Graham Bell was on the, was on the west coast of America. And apparently the story goes that uh, uh, Elisha Gray decided to wait until the morning, you know, to file his patent at the at the patent office. And he was beaten, you know, because he went to bed with, before filing it. He was um, that same day. Alexander Graham Bell did the same thing just a few hours, uh, a few hours before him. And those few hours, you know, you know, turned uh, Alexander Graham Bell into a, a prominent person of fame and Elisha Gray remains a footnote in history that nobody knows about but he invented the telephone just as Alexander Graham Bell did the same thing and so you've got all these different uh, great minds working on one concept but 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 what happened over there in this particular story well some huge quantum leap took place at some point in time and these guys were working on bringing this concept down from the spiritual world of Atzilut to Beria to Yetzirah, you know. And it could be that the people that came before them had, had also helped bring the concept down. If uh, Morse code, you know, uh, Samuel Morse, if he was going to, uh, if he had invented something, okay, so he, he contributes bringing this idea from, you know, Beria to Yetzirah, and there's something there. But you needed to bring this down, and a major amount of effort. The, the the idea, the idea, it's time had come to be born, and so Hakosh Baruch allowed people to to work on it and bring it down. But somehow there's going to be one person who's going to be, you know, gebenched by Hashem. That okay, it's his his merit to be able to actually bring it down and to be recognized uh, internationally by everybody. Um, that that this is his contribution to, uh, even though there are many people working on it, and maybe each, but somehow, who knows why? But 
you know, Hashem's divine providence chooses an individual and that name becomes, uh, you know, a name celebrated as opposed to others who were involved in the work. But, uh, but that's the process of, uh, you know, of trying to understand how things are, are created. And uh, just as these idea, ideas land up creating a product, um, the same thing takes place within the world of philosophy as well. And is that, and that is that, the certain ideas take a long time to develop, and eventually, okay, they they sort of sprout on the on the world stage. And again, some of the ideas aren't positive, and some of them are. Um, and uh, and and this is exactly what's happening over here. So when we go through history, we try and see can we identify uh, certain epochs or certain times uh, which were tipping points in bringing home an idea. And um, once we identify, you know, when something took place and we look around, you know, the 50 years or, you know, before and after, we start to see who the people were that uh, populated the world at the time. And as far as we are concerned, our focus is to find who were the Jewish thinkers of the time and how did that and how did they respond? If you want to know why they spoke about A, B and C, it's not just because they thought of it. Um, and in, in you know in some in some random way, it's because their their contribution philosophically, their ideas, uh, the world needs them. And of course, Baruch Hu, uh, governing the world, sees that human beings are developing in a certain direction, and therefore they need defense against bad ideas, or they need to be uh, you know elevated, redeemed uh, through other ideas. And all of a sudden, those ideas, their time has come. And who are the people who bring it to the, you know, to the greater population? And so this is what um, I want to share with you, that this is, you know, there, there are certain uh, people that, that make the ideas made such a massive uh, difference to the way we think about things. Um, yeah, so this is, this is what I'd like to, I'd like to achieve. So um, again, I'm, I'm using uh, Rabbi Heber, I heard the shiur 20 years ago. So I'm just using his ideas, and then I'll be able to try and, um, you know, weave my some of my own thoughts into the into the process. So the 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 first major um, philosopher or thinker that um, I'd like to deal with is to identify uh, one of the most uh, singular individuals that we all know well, and that is the Rambam, Maimonides. And I want to try and identify what was the Rambam's greatest philosophical contribution to Jewish history. So now we know that the, the Rambam wrote a lot. Like if you do, uh, if you actually Google some of these stats on, on, on how much he wrote, the Rambam on his own wrote more words than the Encyclopedia Britannica. It's just absolutely phenomenal. The output. You know, and we're talking about the Middle Ages here, in medieval times. You know, to 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 be able to produce what he produced, and and it wasn't it wasn't easy. It wasn't like he had this beautiful air-conditioned bookline study, writing with a Parker pen, right, or typing on a computer. He was like, uh, this is this is the amazing thing about the Rambam is absolutely uh, um, unique individual, and we're going to try and demonstrate. We'll speak a little bit about the Rambam and give you a bit of a, 
you know, biography, a, a biographical sketch about him. But um, we're going to demonstrate, you know, who he was and uh, what time he lived in, because the era in which in which he lived, hopefully is going to uh, give us some indication of uh, why it was so necessary in Hashem's world and in the Jewish world and in the world in general, why it was so necessary for him as a person and his contribution at the time, you know, to, uh, you know, to, to what he, what he wrote about. Okay. So this is, uh, let's start quickly from the beginning. We'll try and give you, you know, a short, a short biography. So the lamb, the Rambam lives in a time where we, when we look at the dates, we see that he lives in from 1135 to 1204. And if you look at the world, um, if you look at, you know, universal history at the time and you try and work out what was going on uh in those times and at first glance there's not much going on to be honest i mean in terms of progress uh but what was happening is that the rambam was sort of living in an era which was coming coming off uh coming off the the advent of the crusades so when we look at the history of, of, of the Crusades, um, it's an unfortunate turn in how Jews uh, lived within uh, within Christendom, right? So you had you had Christianity for a long time, um, and the Jews definitely suffered from uh, from the time Christianity evolved into this major power and religion. But until until uh, the so-called turn of the millennia. Um, until the Crusades, the suffering was relatively, I mean, every bit of suffering is terrible. And there was plenty going on beforehand. But there was there was a huge up in the uh, uptake in the anti-Semitic expression of Crusade. Crusade destroyed communities. It 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 it, it pulverized uh, you know Jewish life in in Ashkenaz, you know, in in uh in Western and Eastern Europe, um, and and the start, as you know, um, it was basically Rashi's. The end of Rashi's life really was 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 in the middle of the Crusade. So Rashi, we're talking about Rambam, but I just want to show you in terms of Ashkenazi Jewry, because they the they are we Ashkenazim are the Jews that lived through the worst of this. Uh, the Rambam had to deal with the Muslims, right, and their uh, and their and but 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 the, the Christian Europe just exploded, and in 1095, 1096, this is 1096 was like the actual beginning of the Crusade. Rashi dies in 1105 in the middle of France, and uh, Rashi Rashi comes almost face to face with um, one of one of the the most fearsome warriors of of time, this this knight Godfrey, uh, and the legends about the stories about exactly. You know what what happened over there, and um, you know how in, they tried to save every 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 uh, Jewish town, every Jewish community looked to the leading Christians of the time, the bishops, the priests of the time, to save them, because these guys, these crusades crusaders, were marching through the towns and massacring everybody, and they would run to the bishop and take refuge in the in the churches or wherever he gave them opportunities or you know and they, they they bribed them they had to pay them they had to pay them huge amounts of money 
to um to to protect themselves and most of the time they took the money and it didn't help you know once or twice it helped but but um you know this is this was western europe and all the jews especially in the in the towns that we that we today you know in, in hebrew we 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 talk learn jewish history we talk about the the cities or the countries called shum shum shin vav mem uh, it's a, it's an acronym like an abbreviation uh, it's just a nice jewish way of remembering shum, shum in hebrew is is garlic right but he has the abbreviation uh, shum the shin stands for shapira shapira was the the the, the 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 let's call it the german city of spires and uh the vav stands for vormaisa which in uh, secular history is worms w o r m s um in, in hebrew in yiddish you know they they referred they referred to it as as vormaisa and then um uh, the mem was magenza or mainz and those were the three major uh, centers of Jewish scholarship. Um, and the Crusaders basically wiped them out. To, you know, literally, it took, them, it took them out completely. In fact, the one that was spared an enclave of Jewish survival was Spires. Um, and they, uh, but, but, but the, in general, they wiped out Jewish life, these Crusades. Uh, so yeah, Christendom is now flexing its huge muscle and it's now you know rampaging through europe to to go and wrest control from the muslims who've taken over uh, control of the, the land of israel and they've barred any christians or anyone they want to they don't want there from coming into the land of israel and yeah this became this holy crusade in the eyes of the christians you know to try and uh, to get you know to, to go in and, and and wage war against the muslims Anyway, so the, the first crusade is, is 1096. The second crusade, um, if I'm not mistaken, if I remember correctly, the second crusade is, I think, 1144. Um, and the third one is like 1187. I think those are the, if I remember the dates correctly. Anyway, so those are the, the you know, the first, second, and third crusades, right? So the, the Rambam is living... 1135 okay so he's around for the second and third crusade yeah um so he's the 11 he draws he dies 1204 so even though he's not directly impacted by the crusades but he but he's living during that particular time now the dominant religion in the middle east at the time was islam and and Islam had now penetrated Europe, and and it got as far as northern Spain, and 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 the Muslims were able to take over control from the Christians and beat them back and take over you know the the, the northern part of Spain. Um, now uh, the the what you call, I think I I think I made a mistake. I think it's actually the southern part of Spain they took over. Um, Anyway, so um, I'm just trying to work it out in my head. Yeah, I'm looking at the map in my head. Um, yeah, so Spain became Muslim, and it was the southern part of Spain, Andalusia, which is the bottom part of Spain, 
And that's where the Rambam was, Cordova, those parts of Spain. That that, that was taken over by the Muslims. Um, and uh, basically the Spanish Christians became slaves to the Spanish Muslims. Now, at this point in time, we haven't we haven't sketched exactly what where the Jews are in all of this. But um what was happening was is that we were caught in the middle of this whole sandwich. Um the Muslims in general, there were terrible times, but in general, they 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 were okay to leave the Jews, you know, between periods of time. But when Christianity came to power and rebelled against the Muslims and they they the reconquista, they took back, they took back um the uh, what they had lost in southern Spain. And then of course we 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 felt the the brunt of of, of Christianity. Um but but this is before of course the Inquisition. So yeah, we we we're looking at we're looking at uh the eleventh and twelfth century over here where Christianity becomes a real power. Um and even though the first crusade wasn't very successful. Um, but the second one, the third one, they they got more and more successful. The third one, I think, was the most successful. Um, and they uh, and 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 this is a it was a, an expression of Christian strength, and that religion and what it was how it was able to influence you know internationally and all and specifically uh, uh, Europe. Now we want to understand the following. What what was it that Christianity was selling? What what you know? How how did it become so so popular? So what's very interesting is as follows: um, in order to sell religion, the, the I guess the, the the higher echelons of the intellectual parts of Christianity, you know, felt that they needed to talk in a language that 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 the average person who wasn't very well educated. Could relate to, and so what they what they uh, they developed in their own philosophical expression of their time was to try and make Christianity, uh, how do you say, tangible, that you could actually you could actually hold something, you had something physical to represent religion, and so this period of time in the development of Christianity was the concept of uh, you know making images and icons that people could actually you know physically hold on to um and and all of a sudden within the christian religion you had all these you know symbols and statues uh, mother mary uh, saints you know all of this kind of thing was was happening and and christianity Christ, the christian religion became very tactile you could touch something and feel that you had a connection uh, to God, and that's how they marketed to their people this, uh, you know, this particular story um, of this this religion. Now, um, I just want to—I don't know if you uh, uh, are familiar with this concept, um, but it's something really, really interesting. Uh, it's a—it's a again, it's—it's it's a historical, um, it's a piece of history that I wrote in order to uh, just get a. A grasp on it. So there's a there's a there's a concept um, which is is called um, uh, as follows. It's called the doctrine of transubstantiation. That's a really big word. 
transubstantiation. That was a doctrine that um, I would say was one of the greatest expressions of this concept of, of uh, Christian, you know, tangibility where they were making all these icons. So you, the, the word might not be familiar to you, but the, the concept is, from, is familiar to you. Um, and this, uh, you know, this, this idea was as follows, that, um, that the Christians started to develop this concept of having the wafer and the wine represent the body and the blood of, 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 of Yoshka. And uh, and this is a concept that they developed, which even to this day, um, you know, is 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 around. I mean, the the, the concept became official in the history that I read. Uh, it became official um, in twelve fifteen, um, and, and and this was the this was the doctrine that the wine and you know the bread and the wine of the church service were actually seen as the flesh and blood. Of, uh, of 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 their God, and this this concept now you you think to yourself, what on earth does it have to do with us? But 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 in in order to fan the flames of anti-Semitism, falsehoods, libels were spread against the Jews, and one of their claims was that they desecrated uh, the wafers re representing. I mean, these are like uh, vafflim. I mean, you know, eat them in the, that they desecrated the wafers representing their God's flesh uh, in order to persecute him once again, and and there were libels against the Jews, and that these this uh, this led to absolute pogroms. So the first recorded libel of this particular desecration of the host, as they called it, called it or communion wafers, uh, took place in Germany. You know, approximately in in twelve forty three, and this thing, you know, became more and more sophisticated until eventually, what what we know about the blood libels was like the extreme of this uh, accusation against the Jews that uh, you know towards Pesach they would kidnap a, a young ch Christian child and shech uh, him or her for their blood, um, which they would use to bake matzahs. That's the famous blood libels. But I wanted to bring to the to the fore, you know, this was what was happening in uh, in in Christendom. That, you know, it became in Hebrew they call it tukufat hagshama. You know, the tukufa is an era. Hagshama is the is the ability to to, to be tactile. To it became physical. You know, and uh, this is where Christianity now ties itself to all these icon statues and uh, and, and physical properties. So this is now um, a bit of historical background, you know, that's necessary for our uh, our conversation, because we want to we want to now ask ourselves, um, what do we think the Rambam's greatest contribution philosophically was, you know, to to the Jewish religion, and so in order to appreciate what he's going to tell us. We have to know the historical background. And he, the Rambam's thought is going to be, he is the most anti-tangibility, the most anti-philosopher um, against physical representation that existed in the world. 
at the time. And 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 we're going to show you. I'm going to show you the Rambam's thinking just inside um, that that this was that this um, assault against this concept was a major major contribution, you know, to um, to what was going on in the world around him. And so this is um, what we're going to see next time. And um, you might think, okay, so this is now coming to um, teach us against the, the the philosophy of the time, the religion of the time, the, you know, the but of Christianity's power of the time, and to try and keep Jews away from it. So you had to undermine the philosophy, you know, of uh, you know of of physicality, and this is exactly what um, the Rambam came to do. He might not even have seen his role as it. He took it on, and he took it. He took it on to 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 defeat uh, all kind of heresy. But but the interesting thing is, is that you know this period of physicality, the Tukufata Hagshama, was something that needed a, a, a defender against, and he was the defender against this principle. Um, and so this we're going to see among the thirteen principles of faith. We're going to see what this is about. And then we're going to show you, um, please God, next time, we're going to show you how Jews needed this as well. Because even within Jewish philosophy, uh, there, were, there, were, there were strains of thought that, that hadn't done away with, comp, uh, with, with physically representing God in, in, in shapes and forms as well. They weren't bowing down to an idol, but it was close as to, you know, the pictures of, of people, the amulets that they wrote, um, you know, the so-called Kabbalistic uh, mantras. A lot of this came very close, and even to today comes very close to, uh, you know, to a physical representation of spirituality. And um, this is Bezrat Hashem next week. We're going to jump into this to try and show you how this concept develops and highlight the Rambam's role, you know, in uh, in all of this. So, okay, I'll try to make uh, give you at least a, a good introduction to uh, to this topic, and um, you know, as 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 deep a, a, a concept as it is, I think it's worthwhile appreciating what uh, what what has been um, given to the world by our great uh, Jewish thinkers. So uh, I'll leave it there for today, and wish you a great week. Uh, I'll just. Um, uh, make a comment here quickly, and that is that Bezrat uh, Hashem will still have the shiur next week, but I'm actually going to be in Perth. Deborah and I have been invited to speak there, and there's a conference over the weekend. So uh, thanks to Zoom, I'll still be able to um, give the shiur. So I'll be there. I'll just try and get the times right. I think I have to speak to you at 6.30 in the morning. Very early. Uh, so, uh, but I will... You know, I don't want to. I don't want to let the the momentum drop. So I'm going to do my best to try and uh, to try and give the give the share to you. So that's it. We, I won't be in in shul on Shabbos, but uh, you know, I'll hopefully let uh, Rafi run the show for a bit. But um, but I'll, uh, I'll 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 get back to you. We'll be together, please God, next week. Oh, brilliant. Thank Thanks, you. Rabbi. Thank okay, you. Thanks, Rabbi. Have a good trip, Rabbi. Yes, go well. Okay, cheers. Go well. Cheers. Thank you so much. Thank you. 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 Thank
Rose. Okay. Yeah. Uh, it's Tanya here. Can I yeah. just tell you something very, very interesting? Um, I don't know how to turn on my camera, but um, something very interesting is that those four levels of create of you know bringing something down into the world map exactly to all the defined uh, project management methodologies, right? Like with the methodology, the four main stages. Right. So, so, so you know, project project management in a company is, is to introduce new concepts, to come new products, new systems uh, over and above business as usual, right? So it's all about introducing right. something new. And the four main stages of this are concept, which is your um, absolute. Then you go into design phase, which is Bria. Then you go into your prototype, your pilot, which is Yitzira, and then you do your final implementation, which is your SEA. So it was absolutely one-to-one mapped to the most, you know, w- worldwidely known project management methodology of bringing new concepts into corporates and into businesses. It's like unbelievable how maps like that. That's great. Right. <laughs> so, so it's like you know they kind of tapped into <laughs> Jewish uh, philosophy to bring down this methodology. Yeah, beautiful. Thanks for that. That's great. Uh, thanks, Rob. It was fantastic. Okay, master, ah, thank okay, you. Have a good week. Okay, bye. All right, take care, everybody. Nice to see you all. Yeah, thanks a million. Yeah. Thank you. Thank well, you. All is right. Lawrence, coming. Do you know if Lawrence is coming? I actually don't know. I remember we spoke about it, but I need to um I need to find out. I actually don't know. Because uh, I spoke to Gail last night, actually, and we were t- and I told you because Deb told us the other day that we were going to.